in a way that even his tenderness is like a, how should I say, it's like an instrument. Hello, hello. This is your host, Neha, and you're listening to Who Reads Poetry? This episode is continuation of our last episode with editor and translator Hans Bams. I hope you got a chance to listen to the last episode. I really love the part where the conversation surprisingly reveals the generosity of John Berger. Hans has translated works of Robert Haas, John Berger, among other English poets. He's currently working on translating works of William Stanley Mervyn to German. If German is your primary language, keep an eye out for the book. In this episode, we read Traveling Together by William Stanley Mervyn. Traveling Together is at once a poem about love and separation. We talk how much Mervyn's life and poetry are connected and what makes him relatable. There is this beautiful part about similarities between the lives of Mervyn and John Berger. It's surprising. We talked the gnarly exercise of putting a book together. But now, now, let's go read our poem. So we are reading William Stanley Mervyn today. He is very famous. Uh, he was the poet laureate. He has won every prize ima- imaginable. He for every volume of poetry I think he has produced, he has he has many prizes for that. He started he start he started his career being recognized. Uh, I think W. H. Auden chose him as a Yale. Um, what was it? Young poet, uh, Yale's young poet. Um, and then yeah. from 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 every new volume has brought him more recognition, more comparisons, and 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 every act of his, for example, like he um, when he won the Pulitzer Prize, he chose to give the money to the draft resistance. He openly criticized yeah. uh, America's in- involvement in Vietnam War. He's he's poet. He's a poet, he's an uh, environmental activist, he's quite political. Um, At the same time, he's very, um, he he lives very far away. He lives pretty much off the grid. And it's a very fascinating life all by itself. Um, And we are reading him. And this this piece of poem, when you shared it with me, um, you can read it in a single glance. Right? It's a a short poem, uh, Traveling Together. but it says so much. It it says so much. It's uh, it's it's wonderful. Tell me a little bit more about um, when you found this poem and what was happening in your life around it. Why did you choose this poem? Oh, and what I was attracted by this poem is what is its utmost simplicity, and on the other side, it's very very complex, and it's about traveling, and it's about two persons, and in a way, the one person promises the other that they will stay together while traveling. And I read the poem, I just, when I noticed today that you will ask me these questions, I try to remember, and I must have read it at a time when in our lives, uh, you know, the, the kids were leaving house, or you suddenly um, think about 
what will the travel be? How will, how will it continue? And apparently my, my daughter, uh, talk a lot about my daughter to, today, <laughs> but she's my partner in poetry, and my daughter, she just licked the book from me. So I had only uh, a little, only had my papers. So she had it in Berlin. But, but I retrieved it uh, today. Yeah. And it's called the, the, the Rain and the Trees. And there are two things in there in the title, Rain and Trees, which I love very much. And uh, it's, for me, it was one of these, uh, not his first book that, that I read, but, but it was one of the books I suddenly noticed, no, he comes so close to, to that, what I really want from literature. Um, you it, know, it would, for me, no, no, oh, um, I was going to say, maybe we could read the poem right now okay. and yeah. uh, it would be lovely to hear it in English, the original, and also German. I know I, 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 I don't understand German, uh, but I'm sure some of our listeners would enjoy, enjoy that version too. It would be lovely if you can read for us today. Yeah. Should I read the English? Yes. Oh my. <clears throat> Travel. So, traveling together. If we are separated, I will try to wait for you on your side of things. Your side of the wall and the water and of the light moving at its own speed. Even on leaves that we have seen, I will wait on one side. While the side is there. So in, in Germany, it doesn't look, sound that. We'll see now. <laughs> we'll hear now. Gemeinsam reisen. Werden wir getrennt, versuche ich, auf deiner Seite der Dinge auf dich zu warten. Auf deiner Seite von Wand und Wasser und vom Licht, das mit eigener Geschwindigkeit reißt, sogar auf dem Laub, das wir zusammen gesehen, werde ich auf deiner Seite warten, solange eine Seite nur da. That, that did sound somewhat alike to my very untrained ear, so... <laughs> um. yeah. Yeah, well, often try to do, but, but I noticed only afterwards that, you know, there's sometimes uh, in music, there's like an offbeat. So you start not with the full thing, but you just start very late and then you go into the new tact. And, and here's the same. So I, I have not an off in the beginning, but an off swing in the end. So lange eine Seite nur da. So so that, that the poem is like a bit open in the end. Yeah. So you, there's a, there's a da, and then you expect something to come, but there's silence. So this is, this is one, one thing that I, I try to achieve in some of these poems. This, this traveling together is a bit like a paradoxical thing, because you first think that it's about a couple traveling together, but then you noticed that it's about separation. 
And it must be about a separation which is final. And so I thought it's, it's a poem about how tenderness and yearning can perhaps survive death, the death of a partner. So, so when, when he says, uh, if we are separated, I will try to wait for you on your side of things. Your side of water and of light moving at its own speed, even on leaves that we have seen, I will wait on one side while a side is there. So that, that being in the world would mean that we have one side and the other changes over to another side, but that as long as the side is there, as the separation is there, we are still in a way together. Because when I cross the side too, I will be like in a space where I can't predict if there's any kind of recollection that I can mention because the side, the, the thing where I can find words that I can address, that I can touch, like the wall, the water, and the light, uh, they're gone. So for me, this is a poem about, like, for me, it's, it's a bit like a, a very moving love poem yes, to yes. someone addressing him upon the possibility of him being dead. So this is this is a this is really really something I thought when I read it because I thought it's maybe a special ability of poetry to create this kind of of moments. I. What was uh, what was fascinating to me while while we are talking about this idea of like separation, for example, I love how you say that um, traveling together. When you read the title, you think, well, it's about traveling together, and when you read the text, it's like, oh, it's about something else altogether. Um, what what was interesting to me is that um, the possibility of separation only exists given that you have traveled together. So mm. it's it's almost a prerequisite like to experience, ev even to experience the loss that this poem details and in a way trying to make up for that loss by being in the same place where you're expected to be by a partner, right? Like trying to make up for that by uh, possibly not moving much so that you don't forego the possibility of meeting again, for example, right? Like, if it's not about death, if it's about separation in real life, for example, it could be very well about that. But the separation is not possible till you have traveled together. Um, mm. it, the poem doesn't say much about traveling together, but it, it almost implies that, that you have done that and that was great and that, was, that is worth waiting for. And also that, that also gives you the kind of notion that perhaps like traveling together could continue in another in another way. 
even if, if you're separated by that, as long as there's water and wall and light, there's some kind of, you know, things that you can address that you have shared. So, so I was, I was really taken by that. You know, like a few, a few months ago, I was in Reykjavik, and they showed showed me the the new concert hall. And what they had there, and uh, I could see it. We couldn't walk into this because that would be too dangerous, but we could see them. There were huge rooms, spaces, high above the, the concert hall, which are there just for resonance. So you can't go there. There are no chairs there. <laughs> and even if like a very, you know, maybe, maybe the... the if the hall will be too small, they still can't use them because they're only there for resonance. You can uh -huh. close them and you can open them. And for me, poems are like uh, like things that provide us with this kind of resonance in our lives. And, and this is one of the, the poems like that you often find like in poets like Rilke, for example, that there, there's a notion of something more that's very hard to to define, that's very hard to, to speak about, but, but, but that a poem addresses. And just like addressing it gives it some kind of resonance. So it's not it's not 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 like a reality, it's not like afterlife or um or um, incarnation, all these fixed concepts, but but there's still a notion that there is some resonance there, which is um, not confined to, to what is here on the table or yeah anything. yeah I, I I you're you're right like he doesn't prescribe a way of waiting right he doesn't talk anything about the mode of waiting right. He just says he will wait. He will wait where he's most likely to be found. Um, he'll wait, and the waiting and the and the possibly the memory of traveling together um, are as fundamental and as elemental as light and water and all of that. Something that you said about resonance was interesting to me, and I don't know if what you mean by resonance, resonance and what I'm going to say right now are similar concepts, but I love how ambiguous the poem is. We are both in very different phases of life, right? Um, most of us are. Like, we, um, we may be in the same place, but, you know, like, what's happening, our inside lives can be at once very different and similar. But because the poem is so vague, it helps you in a way, I shouldn't say vague, I should say open. Because the poem is so open, you can actually insert yourself in the poem. So I can insert myself in the poem. And I see it as a, as a very, very um, intense love poem. And you get to insert yourself in a poem and you get to think about... Um, love and separation and the finality of what it may mean to die and may mean to remember a partner who is just no longer around. That's 
Um, it's amazing that it allows for both of those possibilities and both of those sets of feelings at the same time. And there's also a layer, of course, of reading that that the the product of traveling together it's the poem itself. So it's uh, so I often thought when I was thinking about the poem that it's a bit like a that in a way he he describes his kind of uh, he would also wait for the poem if he is separate by it and wait on his side of things till till it comes comes all together. He has a in the in the interview uh, Mervyn said a very um, a very interesting sentence if you really get a poem don't you have the feeling that you are remembering it? that you discovered it yourself, a, a poem that, that you read, that you discovered it yourself, that in fact you have written it yourself. <laughs> oh, that's that, very tricky. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> generous implication, you know, towards his readers to imagine that, that we have uh, written his uh, poetry. I, I would say this much, that um, every single time I read this poem, I wanted to read it all over again. It's, it's short, it's sweet, it has so much space in it for you to think and to for you to feel that real, like, like, you know, like you thought of it or like you could have written it because innovate's so yeah. fundamental. Um, waiting or the like occasionally when I think about people writing about love and in this case um, we we do think it's a love poem right like it's it, yes. even though it doesn't explicitly make statements about one person is waiting for another person but it, it implies that very strongly um, Occasionally, I think that when we are writing about um, waiting for another person uh, on the other side of the equation of love, we are many times writing about, or I feel we are writing about, and this may be quite a bit of a stretch, but I feel we are writing about wanting to be waited for, to be loved in such a way that even in the finality of separation, we are waited for. Isn't... Uh, I don't know, I feel like attention and the whole concept of waiting, which is honestly considered to be wasteful in uh, in modern life. Uh, but we want to be valuable enough, at least to one person, to be waited for in that indefinite kind of sense. And this is a very specific question, but I, th I think you may be able to answer this. But are there two different words in German for waiting and for waiting indefinitely? Or... Um, are, are they separate or like you need a different phrase to, to I, I don't know I wonder if there are different kinds of waiting in the language no there, there, we have words like ausharren which means that you stay put in a place Okay. but, but, but this kind of you know waiting is, is very complex because it's passive, you have to wait, but on the other side, it's an active thing to wait. So, so this kind of, and, and, and we have no word that, that can have, 
has this full full meaning. In the German word warten has the same kind of uh, root than 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 waiting. So, but I think the, the English and the, and the and the German there must have been a time when um, when they were not more apart from each other than um, than Dutch and German, for example. So they've yeah. been closer together. And, and, and these words just come from the time when they're very close. There's a very uh, interesting poem um, where about like 10, yeah, mm -hmm. more than 15 years later, Mervyn came back to the same kind of theme. And, and this is called To Paula in Late Spring. Paula is, was his uh, yeah. wife of his uh, later years who died, unfortunately, that spring. Let me imagine that we will come again when we want to and it will be spring. We will be no older than we ever were. The worn creeps will have ease like the early cloud through which the morning slowly comes to itself and the ancient defenses against the dead will be done with and left to the dead at last. The light will be as it is now in the garden that we have made here these years together of our long evenings and astonishment. Long evenings and astonishment. Wow. And, and this is this is a bit like on the other side. You, you could see that, that now we move into a more biographical situation because yes. it's Paula and it's it's the garden that they tended together, the palm garden on on Hawaii. There there is a lot of longing, imagination. So it's all the kind of things that are also there in, in the first poem, traveling together. But traveling together, in a way, for me, is more philosophical, because the, the I, the person speaking, is much more an abstract voice, whereas here you, you can see the two lovers walking through the palm garden in the twilight of long evenings and astonishment. But, but to, to leave this poem with the word astonishment, creates for me the same kind of tenderness that the other poem has. And I think it's one of the qualities of Mervyn that are not spoken about that often, but, but is the one cloth that everybody touches when he reads uh, Mervyn is his tenderness. And, mm -hmm. and in a way that even his tenderness is like a, how should I say, it's like an instrument. It's not, it's not something that he is by the way, or as a lover, or, but the, his whole poetry is so much about minute um, details, about little notions, about... Paying attention, I suppose. Like, I think paying a lot of attention, right? I, I, I love how you contrast uh, traveling together with, with the later poem uh, um, addressed to Paula. Um, it's interesting to note that 
The first poem is in a way speculating the possibility of reconnecting after some kind of separation. And it's abstract, right? As you mentioned. Yeah. And the later poem deals with it actually happening. And it is so hard then to suppress the I, the 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 person experiencing the loss and that is when we see all the detail, all the detail of what what waiting in the event of a separation as final as death may mean. You know, when, one of the problems that I had during the book is, that, I don't know, but, but he probably wrote about like a thousand poems. Wow. And for, for the German book, <laughs> they could only take like, they said 40 and then I delivered 80, so we settled down on 60. That seems so, fair. <laughs> but, but then we had the, then we had the, the notion that it's, it's, so I had, you know, I, I was very much uh, looking for mourning for birds. Yeah. And I had two poems in there uh, where he, he is talking about the death of his dogs. <laughs> like every dog that passes his life gets a death poem. But, 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 but I suddenly felt, you know, maybe you're missing something because you're, you're, you're just looking for the things that you feel sympathy with. Yeah. So, so then I wrote to, to all my poet friends and said, what's your favorite poem? What's your favorite poem? And uh, two and three, two or three of them I put into the book, you know, and one was this polar poem. Mm -hmm. and, and suddenly I noticed, okay, traveling together and two polar in late spring is a bit like, a, you know, it makes, the, makes the, the experience of reading this book richer because you suddenly have like the same kind of experience and two different kind of songs in a way. The one Almost. a bit more abstract and the other a bit more like a, like a love ballad, you know, the one a bit more like Morton Feldman and the second a bit like Joni Mitchell. I suppose. Um, I, um, I found it fascinating that uh, Mervyn start, started his um, life he, as a poet really young. He was barely a young boy and he was writing hymns for his father who was uh, a minister I suppose and um, and then later in his life he became a Buddhist um, a practicing Buddhist um, and is very connected to nature and ecology and uh, not just connected actively trying to preserve it there's a certain sense of spirituality about Mervyn um, as you mentioned earlier, the, the the sense of I think detail, like everyday small detail, and uh, tenderness, and when you hear him talk, it's one of the most one of the most remarkable things about him. Uh, he is often uh, talking about other species as if with the same kind of like. A connection that human beings talk about other human beings when you ask him about um what is unique about 
um, us as a species. Uh, he talks about imagination. What I found really funny is that when he tries to describe that imagination, what he's really talking about, in my opinion, is empathy. He's always talking about how we as people can 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 kind of grasp what what it, what it means to kind of grasp and connect to the suffering of uh, whales in the ocean and like uh, the, uh, the d destruction of their habitat and so on. And he's always talking about empathy and the tenderness that you mentioned. And there is a certain sense of spirituality about his life. Um, do, you, do you carry that sense of spirituality or devotion to something in your own life? Um, I hope so. Oops. It's something that it's it's uh, I think uh, you know, this transparency, this tenderness, this being aware of uh, of like the birds in front of the window, uh, of course, was something that that led me into to reading him. But, but and he was really one of the first, you know, like the the most important book of the 20th century, or one of the most important books of the 20th century was Rachel Carson's The Silent Spring, mm -hmm. and a book about the dying of all the birds. And this was one of the books that kicked off uh, awareness that nature suddenly is something endangered. You know, that was one of these watershed moments. And he picked it up, and really from, from the early 60s on, he's writing poems about extinct animals. Sometimes his poems have a bit like a big yellow taxi feel to it, so they're very political, and sometimes there are even like paroles in there. But, but sometimes he he presents this process of extinction of animals, of trees, uh, of course, uh, through the Vietnam War, the kind of systematic uh, destroying of forest lands, you know, forest yeah. as big as Maine. You know, not not just like a park or something. Uh, this this kind of atrocity really made him angry, and he became very political. He wrote a lot of protest songs in a way, but he also, you know, it seeped into his his poetry, so that I think his uh, his turning Buddhist in a way is I don't know if 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 it's satori driven. Or it's more, you know, the most of the people who go to Buddha because they wanted to be enlightened and they want to have the big flashlight in their head. But, but, but the most important thing of Buddhism is compassion. And compassion, yes. not only to man, but, but to all sentient beings. And I think that that's what attracted him to this thing. And, and that makes him... Uh, also, such a, I would say, he's not, he's not a political or he's not an over-excessive tree hugger when he talks about his palm trees, but he talks about the urgency just to collect all the palms of Hawaii mm -hmm. that are at the verge, they have been at the verge of being extinct because yeah. everything was pineapple, 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 and took care of that. And this taken actually care of of the forest when you see like a documentary about his his home uh, gives you some kind of a backup to this personality which 
which of course makes makes uh, makes the poem grow. Yeah, we we talked about coherence earlier, and it is so obvious that Mervyn's life is so coherent, right? Like he pays attention to detail. He's always all about tenderness. He is. He's advocating tenderness, not just amongst human beings, not just romantic love, but tenderness across species. He's talking about nature and birds and paying attention in mornings. And um, and he's also doing those things, right? I think that's what makes him like an on, honest and coherent personality in a way. Uh, he's advo advocating for those things and his own life, he's doing those things as he goes along and his life and his body of work are in a way a whole. And uh, it, that is that is very beautiful. And that does want, um, as a reader, um, and as a very new reader, thanks to you, um, as a reader that makes me want to pay attention to what he's saying because he's doing and writing about what he's doing. And there is a certain kind of honesty about that. Uh, on a lighter note, <laughs> I actually grew up in the town where Buddha found enlightenment. Uh, there is a big tree and whatnot. And so a huge shout out to my hometown of Gaya. Um, and uh, it's it's always wonderful to be in Gaya in December, though I'm not there and I'm not going to be there this time. Um, there is this uh, con uh, congregation of all uh, the Buddhist monks from everywhere where people practice Buddhism and just tourists in general in December because the Lai Lama comes over there and there is this chanting and it's just it's just excessively beautiful. Um, now. Now we are here, we have talked about Mervyn and uh, we have talked about what we feel about the poem. Um, I'm curious, and this is, this is, I guess, an overarching question and a question that I think I ask myself very often. And um, I think every, every person remotely interested in poetry asks this question. Um, what makes a poet relatable? Uh, Mervyn lives all the, way, uh, all the way in Maui. His life is so different from our lives and uh, um, his, his, his everyday um, isn't like the everyday of many of his readers. Maybe we dream of having the life Mervyn has, of tending to a garden and admiring evening light and so on and so forth. Um, but we aren't in the same place as Mervyn is, but he's still relatable. What makes him relatable, in your opinion? I think one... Yeah, I think I wouldn't relate to Wallen Stevens because I'm a clerk, like him, working for a security, you know, was a security company, was like an insurance company. Mm -hmm. But it's... I think what, what he... For him, what was very important is his kind of independence, because I think he was the last generation of poets, like like Allen Ginsberg, for example, who who never took a job at university or in some kind of Guggenheim institution, something like this. He, he did everything on his own, and he knew that he would never have any kind of money, and and he did this for so many years. Uh, working like for the BBC in London and uh, going to his house in in France, uh, working 
translating a lot, you know. His body of work is immense. Uh, translate, he translated about like 50 books. And, and making a living, which is like a living. So he never, I think he never could have paid pensions and such. And, and I, I just saw like in his late life, he got awarded some kind of prizes, which always made him independent that like in old age he doesn't have to to look for or, or have fear for where the bugs come from but, but this happened only very late in his life and in this way I was amazed uh, when I saw a documentary lately that he is so much alike with John Berger so both you know both are 90 John died in general being 90 um, both in 71, received the big prize, Mervyn mm -hmm. the Pulitzer and John the Booker Prize. John gave the Booker Prize to the Black Panther people, half of it, mm -hmm. and Mervyn gave uh, half of the prize, uh, or, or the whole prize, to a woman who got blinded by a police thing in Berkeley while protesting. Mm -hmm. So they're both very much opposed, of course, to Whitman War. Both of them then... Uh, went to France, to the countryside, and tried to reconnect to something. John Virtue was more about uh, being the documenter of the losses that come about when the people leave farming and go to the cities, where, where Mervyn was traveling the other way around. He, he saw these gardens, and he saw how the people work, he saw their instruments, and for them, it was a bit like a time traveling in a, in a kind of world that stayed the same from the 14th century to now, you know, till there were still like horse-drawn carts and all this kind of thing. So this was, it was still there. And uh, so, so these two persons that were so, so important for me, I suddenly noticed that they are also in their biographies are many uh, similarities. Both are completely independent and both lived in a way for So Hans, you are writing a book. Um, you, tr you have translated uh, 60 of Marvin, 80 of Marvin poems and 60 of which, well, given your negotiation with your publisher, are, are going to be in a book. Tell us more about the book and the, the, the process that you use in translation? And why translation in general, I suppose? And translation is always, you know, also a way to be a more complete person. So I'm definitely convinced, and I'm happy to say also my family that translating Robert Haas made me a better cook because Whoa. there are so many recipes in his poems and to make sure that the translations are accurate, you know, I did all these uh, things then in our own kitchen. I never so, knew uh, translation would lead to more cooking. This is definitely a today I learned moment for me. This is fascinating. Go on. And uh, but 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 the drive to to translate something, you know, like okay, Mervyn was never translated into Germany. There, there was never a book published by him, so it will be the first book. And I, I came across his 
poems about like 20 years ago. And I always had the feeling that they made myself, my life, richer. Uh, they, they gave my understanding of poetry uh, a fuller meaning. And therefore, I did it for about like 20 years. Times they, they, they were published like in magazines, but, but I was never worrying about doing a book because I thought it's so complicated. And uh, there will be so many versions, so many translations possible. Must, mustn't be mine. And only in the end, when he turned 90, I thought, okay, it would be, would, would be sorry if he would never see a German book. So, so then I wrote to a publisher that I know quite well, who also published the John Berger. And they said yes. And uh, I was very happy about this. Because I had the feeling then that Mervyn was missing in Germany. You know, like in Germany, the two American poets that cover all the ground uh, for many years have been uh, Allen Ginsberg, and then it was John Ashbery. Mm -hmm. but, but both of them are very New Yorkish. They are very unique. They, they are very much people of their kind of generation. Whereas when you look at the Californian poetry nowadays, like Robert Huss, but also younger people like Martin Bell and people who are looking for more open spaces in poetry, Mervyn is much more interesting and much more urgent. So I thought, okay, literature can have something new, new chapter, if, if these poems are in Germany. And um, that was like the we see, like, the drive to do it. And besides, like, having little little notebooks at home with half-finished translations, but, but just to say, okay, all right, let's do a book. And, and this, of course, is another kind of step because then you have to find from this thousand poems, like 60, 80, 50, to... <laughs> That's 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 quite the quite the mining exercise to to find sixty to eighty poems uh, amongst thousands. And what I what I was very happy then, just like yesterday in the evening when I was preparing our our um, interview, I I found like a, a little page of Mervyn uh, where he comments about him translating, and, and he says that for years he was trying to translate a, a poem from the Latin, and actually I have to say the poem is very close to the original, but it's not close to all words of the original. Mm -hmm. um, but he says, and one day I realized that I knew suddenly how I would like to hear the Latin phrases in English if they could exist in English, and the words for the translation, as they occurred to me, seemed to be as literal as they could possibly be. So, so he uh, says it's very literal because translation is not only a process of, of the pen and paper and now, but it's a process that he carried this little Latin poem in his mind for so long that 
of course, other faculties except the hand and the pen and the paper and uh, are working on it. His memory, his idea of rhythm, probably an insight that he had when he was writing about the death of a friend. So there's many things that that came together that give such a much more clearer idea what this really enigmatic small Latin poem is. There's only four lines. And his version, it's a death poem again, so um, uh, his version goes like this. It's from Emperor Hadrian. Little soul, little stray, little drifter, now where will you stay, all pale and all alone? After the way, you used to make fun of things. So it, it's, a, it's a poem addressing the departing soul who, who starts to be a little drifter, which I found <laughs> a very sweet word for, for our soul away from us after the way he used to make fun of things so he's, he, he suddenly he's at the end of his cynicism but, but he still thinks okay you, you, you made fun about every idea of afterlife and now where will she go to so that gives the whole thing a very clear very beautiful formulation but also it leaves you on a lighter note you know yes Yes, I, I found it's it's very, uh, well. Death and humor. Um, people have managed to make death humorous, and uh, it's a, it's hard work. And I'm glad people are trying to do that. <laughs> I'm certain there is nothing humorous about death and practicality, but I love that um, a little bit of mischief and the sense of lightness comes about in that poem. Um, well, yeah. congratulations on the book, Hans. Um, I'm very happy, even though I'm not the target audience uh, of Marvin's poems being translated in German. I'm very happy that this book is coming about. And as you said, um, Marvin was missing in Germany. And um, so I'm glad it's happening. Um, and uh, when is the book coming out? It'll be late in spring. So late in spring. Be- late in spring. In April, and it will be published by Karl Hansa in Germany, which is a in cooperation with the uh, poetry library. There's a center for poetry in Munich and they together have a collection of books uh, coming out regularly. So I'm, I'm happy because it gives us some kind of a backing. And as I said, Mervyn, you know, only few people, very few people knew about him, but for his 90th birthday a few weeks ago, uh, there, for the first time there was big, big article in the our leading culture pages in the FAZ. And, and this, of course, is like a good sign, you know, that you're not all alone with your wish to have a German Mervyn, but other people are waiting too. But there's, there's one poem, I, which is the last poem that, that, that we know of, of Mervyn, uh, which, which was written this year. I think it's a bit like, you know, we talked about Buddhism. In Buddhism, especially in Chinese and Japanese Buddhism, there's this way to address a departing friend. There are millions of these poems there. There's a way that you 
have to have like a, if, if you're like a Zen monk, you better take care that you have a death haiku. And you <laughs> write this haiku years before to make sure that it's a good one. And, and then here is the, the last poem, which I think, again, is a love poem to Paula. And as it's the last poem that, that the Mervyn um, published, and I hope there will be more soon, uh, I just thought we could end with that. That sounds it's great. Called, it's called Wish. Please, one more kiss in the kitchen before we turn the lights off. That is absurdly beautiful and heartbreaking and at the same time and a very good end to uh, our conversation, um, which given that you read the poem, I want to go back all over again and talk about that. But I guess this will have to do for today. Um, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us uh, all the way from Frankfurt. Uh, this has been amazing. Um, it's 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 always good to talk to people who care about poetry and it's even um interesting and in, in in a way enlightening to talk to people who who pay so much attention to it in a way of taking care to translate it um thank you so much Hans. um thank you all right thank you for listening let us know what you thought of this episode on twitter we are who reads poetry if you have recommendations on who we should have next on the podcast, or better still, you want to be on the podcast, please tweet at us. Again, our handle is Who Reads Poetry. This podcast would not be possible without Brian Kelly, who very graciously gave it music. Thanks, Brian. You can find Brian at Spilth on Twitter. That is S-P-I-L-T-H. Ask Brian for the story behind the handle. You can find links to the poems and people we talked about in the show notes. We will love to hear from you. Until next time, bye-bye.